So unfortunately, this morning, I don't have Catherine with me because she's off taking care of her father. Uh, instead, I have Tim Sprague, a local real estate developer who has built some amazing buildings here in Phoenix. So I feel really lucky that he's actually got time to talk to me because he seems like he'd have more important things to do. But anyway, thank you for coming on and welcome, Tim Sprague. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to this. Tim is a, a real estate developer, which always struck me as being a really weird thing because it seems like such an overwhelming task to take on building buildings. These are not trivial. It's not like building a house. A building a house is a big enough project in and of itself. <laughs> this is like building a house for 100 or, 100 or 200 people. So I guess my first question is, Tim, when you wake up in the morning, how do you decide to build a building? How do you have the courage, the sense that things are going to turn out properly to actually get started? Having the courage is something that you've adopted a long time ago when you first decided to get into the industry itself. And um, I got thrown into the deep end of the pool back in 1979. I came to Phoenix uh, to join my father-in-law in in the real estate business. I left a a great law practice in Dallas, Texas and came out here and and was very excited about joining him. And uh, three days after we moved here, he discovered that he had leukemia. And unfortunately, 10 days after I moved here, he went into the hospital uh, for chemotherapy. And this is 79. And believe me, this is like trying to deal with something with a very blunt instrument. So he went to chemotherapy, and it was very, very tough. And he passed uh, on December 31, and I moved here on October 1. He was finishing up a condo project in uh, North Phoenix, and had just broken ground on a second one. And his office consisted of an office administrative type and a salesperson that helped him sell the condos. And that was it. And I was the new kid on the block to come in to help. So I got thrown into the deep end of the pool. Mm. And I had to learn what was going on pretty quickly. Uh, my prior experience in the real estate development world was pounding nails in the summertime to make money between uh, semesters in school. I mustered a lot of courage back at that time. And whether it was false courage or real courage or whatever, we finally made it do it and it worked. And I was very fortunate to have been under an umbrella of really cool, neat people that were good friends of his oh. that uh, helped me, protected me, and all kinds of things as, we, as I learned the biz. Boy, that really does not sound like an easy way to start the business. It was not easy. It was not easy. It was very, it was very trying. But at the same time, I think I probably learned things much faster than you would have normally because I had to. Do you feel like you missed anything? Anything that really caught you off guard? Not really. I... I there was another complication that happened, and we're, in the, and we're in the process of hopefully not dealing with it again. Uh, people don't realize that back in 1979, 1980, and 1981, starting in 80, interest rates went through the roof. Mm. At the time I entered the business, prime interest rate, which is the interest rate that's charged the best borrowers by banks, was hovering around 18 to 21%. That's insane to think about today. It's insane. And today, we're worried about interest rates going up. Prime's at 4%. Right. Right. So just to give you an idea, when you sell condos, you have to have in loans or mortgages for your buyers. Uh, So when they buy, they put down equity as their down payment, and then they get a mortgage. The developer, in most cases, especially in the condo project, you go out and try to find a bank that will give you a commitment for X amount of dollars for a number of mortgages to be able to sell your condo units. I thought that I had really landed one of the biggest things in my life when I was able to find a lender in the spring of 1980 that gave me a commitment for in-loan mortgages for my buyers at 15%. Right. 
And today, everybody's worried about 5.5%. It's good to put that in perspective. We lived through much higher interest rates before. I think we much. Can, hopefully, we can do it again. Well, I think we'll do it again. It's just a, it, it'll things will slow down. We, we live in a very crazy time right now. I wish I could... Uh, do you think do you think it's more crazy than it was in the in the early 80s though? Oh yeah. Oh, because yeah. it seems like every every decade we have our struggles to deal with. We do. Uh we've never had to deal with what the impact of COVID was. We've never had that much money pumped into the economy, the world economy by the different uh, federal banks across the world and the supply chain issues mm. that were experienced have never been experienced before except maybe in war. Well, we had the gas crisis in the We 70s. had the gas crisis in 76. But then you couple that with uh, Putin invading Ukraine, and the disruption of that has just been crazy. So you've got a lot of things going on at the same time. Uh, we'll weather the storm. It'll be, it won't be easy, um, and I don't know how long it's going to last, but inflation will ultimately come down. I don't know. It may be a year. It may be two years. maybe three. Don't know. So you mentioned why you came to Phoenix, huh? but I really think of you as one of the most pro-Phoenix people I've ever met. Did you fall in love with Phoenix? You know, it took me a while. Let me give you one of the most difficult things that I had to deal with off the bat, and it seems very, very trivial. I used to run a lot before my knees gave out. And I'll never forget that we were here in Phoenix, and we moved into our house, and it's like October 2, October 3. I go out for a long run of 10 miles. I come back to the house, and I go to the kitchen sink and get a glass to fill it up with water, and I put on the cold water. I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and it never gets cold. And my wife, who's from Phoenix, asked her, I said, Jennifer, what's wrong with this? Oh, it's hot. I said, yeah, it is hot. Where's the cold water? Well, that was my first experience of understanding what it's like to live in a desert. Anyway, past that, Phoenix is an incredibly welcoming place. Uh, even there, there, there are the old blue blood types that have been second and third generation for the most part, and still is today, a very open place for people to come in. I came from Dallas, which is uh, very much an old blue t- bluebird type town. And I had access to things just because I was in a lo- large law firm that was very powerful in the town, which opened up a lot of doors. Other than that, Dallas and Phoenix were night and day. Phoenix is very open, very eager to learn things. And even though it's fairly conservative from a political standpoint, Phoenix was always open to look at new things, and that was exciting to me. And being in, in the development business, and at that time Phoenix was starting to grow, it was, uh, it was a very exciting time. I know what you mean about the water. Being here myself for 10 years now, 11 years now, it's the indicator that we've hit summer is when you turn the cold water on and it never... And it never turns cold. There have been summers where I just turn off the hot water heater. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've gone that far. I still run it through because you don't want it to sit, but I right. still, uh, you know, there's no point in having it on. <laughs> you know, why do I like Phoenix? Uh, besides being very open and uh, accepting of new folk, Phoenix has has always had the opportunity to grow. It's become a very interesting place and very desirable place from a, from a travel perspective. Snowbirds come in to get out of the cold weather. They get here, they look at it, they like it. The desert has a very interesting appeal to it, and it's something that, in in the beginning, when we moved here, it was okay, but I come from green country in Oklahoma, and it took a while to get used to it. Now, I really like the desert. I mean, there's something peaceful about it. Uh, There's a certain amount of solitude that's just inherent to that environment that is appealing to me. 
And yeah, I, um, I think every biome, if you will right? allow me to use a word from Minecraft, uh, every, you know, if you're from the Northeast or the Southwest or every place has its special moments of the day. And yeah. Phoenix, one of the things I love about it from that perspective are the sunsets because they can be so quiet and have just amazing sunsets with pinks and blues. Right. And, and and sunrises. Sunrise, well, right. I, some I'm, of us tend to go a little bit. I'm a very early person. Yeah. And in the days when I ran, I was always up very early. Now I walk instead of run. But uh, the sun rises are just as spectacular. And part of that is because we have such a huge sky. Like yeah. when I was living in New York under a canopy of trees, you could never see the sky. Right. Never knew what was going on. Right. But you can see the entire sky. It was a little bit like that out in Minnesota as well. Yeah. Uh, and that was fun because you could see where the tornadoes were coming from. <laughs> Don't have to worry about that so much here. The other thing is that there is a quietness to the desert, right. especially at twilight. I don't know, maybe when the sun comes up too, I, I don't experience Same that thing. very much. Same thing. Like, uh, matter of fact, it's actually more. And, uh, you know, as opposed to someone from the Northeast who I remember the quietness of the snow falling. That was right. really a very right. special time. But we have, we have our special times here. And the things, you know, the podcast listeners will not be surprised that I say the two things I love about Phoenix are the trails because we have a very serious trail system here, even if it's not particularly well marked. Right. Uh, and Costco. And Costco. <laughs> I lived in New York, and the Costco wasn't close enough. And Interesting. It was, just felt like living in the sticks. Trails and Costco. I think the thing I what, I, what I like about Phoenix, again, as I said, is very accepting. A lot of the people in Phoenix are willing to learn, and they're willing to try new things. And again, as I said, even though it's very conservative politically, changing though, people are willing to try things. And um, every every new generation or every group that comes up seems to be more willing to try. I think part of that might be because so many of us are from other places, and I think that the willingness to move to a new place mm. may make people a little more open to different ideas. First of all, we're coming from somewhere else, so we have right. to we acclimate ourselves to a whole new system right. of doing things. But I, I think just the willingness to move, and I, I've seen studies recently of the past 10 years, Americans are just not as willing to move as they used to be, and I think that's a worrying trend for me. Right. I, I don't disagree with that, but I think it's a, that's a characteristic of people that, that live here. Yeah, no, no question about it. And I think you, if you're in a place like that, even if you're a native, uh, you tend to have that. I think it's just, in, it's, become, it's just one of those things that's in the air. Right. I want to go back to your question. You know, how do you get the courage to do that? Well, I learned by the School of Hard Knocks, jumping in the deep end of the pool and that kind of thing, learning how to swim. But, what, what, but more than anything else, what happens when you start to understand how a community works and things that are interesting to you that you wish that were here causes you to focus on different things and things you'd like to develop. Maybe you're trying to mimic something that you know from someplace else. Mm -hmm. Or more importantly for me is trying to take things I've learned from someplace else and transform them into what works for this environment the best. And what, what is one thing that you think you brought from Oklahoma or from Dallas that uh, mm. you introduced to Phoenix? From Oklahoma and Dallas, um, somewhat a sense of community, being open to uh, helping people. I think, I think a lot of what I've, what I've tried to do here is not so much Oklahoma or Dallas. It's more um, bigger urban centers mm -hmm. like um, New York, Chicago, Paris, London. I like art a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm a minor in art history. I think it's one of those things that we've been blessed with in terms of having the ability to do to create things, and I art to me is 
you know, all the way from different mediums to culinary activities to whatever. But having the opportunity to have those things uh, grow, uh, start, and cultivate, uh, those are things I've always tried to look at and see how can I apply that to this environment and try to build things around it. I would say that seems like one of your strengths is bringing the, the arts, the culture, and the design into your buildings because the buildings you've worked on are pretty impressive. And I remember the first one I think I saw was Oasis on the Grand, which mm-hmm. was, was it low-income housing for artists? What was yes. that build as? Yeah, Affordable okay. housing for artists. How, how is that going? I haven't been there It's going while. great, actually. It's amazing. We took an old single-room occupancy hotel, motel, that at the time we got a hold of it, a friend of ours bought it. It was like the dog that caught the car that it was chasing. It was uh, bigger than any project that he'd done before. And this guy's an extremely successful person, a very good friend of ours. And uh, his idea was to turn this into condos and that he was going to carry back the mortgages himself and have that be part of his estate planning. Mm-hmm. Right. And this located in an area that at the time that he bought it was was pretty pretty sketchy. And when we closed the uh, the hotel down, the community action officer for the police department in the city of Phoenix came to me at a, at a neighborhood meeting and said, Mr. Sprague, just want to say thanks. I said, thanks for what? And he goes, wow, when you closed the hotel down, the crime rate in the area dropped by 60%, six zero. I said, what? He goes, yeah, no kidding. And this place was a den of sin. It was drugs, prostitution, the whole shooting match. And we changed it. It changed the neighborhood. And unfortunately, it was a time when the Great Recession started in 08 and 09. And you couldn't give a condo away, much less have it be very, very affordable. So we went to plan B. And plan B was to have affordable housing for the artist community because the Grand Avenue area where this was located at 15th Avenue, Roosevelt and Grant, was really starting to get some traction as being a a good art community. And um, we said, okay, let's do that. It took us a while to put together the financing. But we took a 99-room motel and turned it into 60 studios and one-bedrooms affordable housing for artists, and uh, 29% of the units are what I'll call affordable housing. They have a restriction on the rental rates that you can charge, and the balance of them are market rate. We've had a waiting list to get into that property from day one, and still do. Yeah, that is a problem we're, I think, facing right now again with downtown being so successful in its redevelopment is we were talking to uh, DJ Leary, a local uh, poet, a couple weeks ago. And he's moving back to D.C. to be with his family, but also because Phoenix is no longer inexpensive. It's pretty expensive to live here now. And he was uh, saying that a lot of his artist friends are also looking to relocate. So it's important to have as much affordable housing as we can if we want to keep that community. I totally agree. And it's difficult to do. Finding capital to be able to support affordable housing is difficult. It takes a long time to piece it together. And the project that we did on Grand Avenue literally took us two plus years to put the capital together to make the deal work. And if it weren't for the fact that the gentleman that we helped put it together had the the capital to buy the property and be able to hold on it and wait while we were putting the rest of the money together to make it work, if that hadn't been there, it would have never worked. Right, I see that as being a really difficulty. I mean, if you're holding onto a property that's doing nothing for two years, that's not an easy thing to do. That's not an easy thing to do. The other thing I I know from New York, there's a lot of will to have low-cost housing in and around New York. The political will isn't there, though, because nobody wants it on their street. Right. And I don't know, is that worse or better here in Phoenix? Well, you know, it's, it's the, uh, the NIMBY attitude, not in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And the way you solve that uh, problem, and it's been done, 
and you need to get more market rate developers to embrace it, is to have stratified economic housing. Mm-hmm. Meaning that you have, let's say you have a 200 unit apartment complex, let's have you know, 10, 15, 20% of those be 60% of the average medium income of people there. And so you have that strata, but you don't have the units be any different. Nobody knows that there's any kind of a difference, but you just you have the ability to allow that, that tendency to take place. That's the way you solve it. And unfortunately for our market, that's not a requirement. In New York, and most, most projects of size, it is a requirement mm. that you have 10 to 15% be affordable now the problem now is that the capital to be able to do that is not there anymore it's just just not there i'd also worry about new york uh you know th- that might be the, the the law but there may there are probably all kinds of ways to get around it new york is my understanding of the new york real estate market is that it's not exactly one you want to go into unless you're prepared to bare knuckle fight well it seems like a be, rough place to be most of the people that develop there have been in the business for a very long time and their connections and and in all facets yeah they're are very deep yeah, yeah. that's yeah. a nice way to put it you're much more political than i am or or you have a much better tongue than i do i'm a little bit more blunt well I you think. know it's interesting what i do requires you to be pretty politically savvy and i've done we we've done things that when i first got into the business we were developing what what we call greenfields which are places where there's no development around it and you're actually you know going to the the spread of what's happening within within the population on the boundaries of things. Uh, starting in uh, 2000, we started focusing completely upon infill development. Mm-hmm. And when you say infill, I don't know a lot of people understand what that means. Well, infill, in, infill means going into uh, a developed area like the center of Phoenix and um, taking property that needs to be repurposed or finding properties that haven't been developed and uh, doing development inside of an already existing na- neighborhood. And that's about as challenging as it gets. See, you're not meeting my expectations of a real estate developer because you're doing all the things that seem like they're very smart and what we want people to be doing in general, but they require extra work. And, yeah. you know, instead of you can, it's easier to go and create a planned community on the outskirts where the the, right. the land is cheaper but then you cause more sprawl, and you're not near any services, and you kind of in the middle of nowhere. Well, not only in the middle of nowhere, there there are, there are two other factors involved that aren't very smart. Number one, you you have urban sprawl, and when that happens, you really you really start taxing all of the infrastructure of a community. It's much cheaper from a city perspective to serve a thousand units that are within a square mile than it is a thousand units that are spread over ten square miles. And what happens over time, there's been some significant studies that show that the communities that are outside of the normal boundaries, if you will, they'll never pay for themselves. Hmm. And there will be a point to where the city can't afford to provide the services under the same uh, structure in terms of what it would cost you to deliver water or sewer services to somebody that's 10 miles outside of town, to somebody that's within the core. And so we're going to have some very interesting equity challenges because it's going to cost more to serve the people outside and the people on the inside aren't going to want to foot the bill for the people that are outside. That's a little bit scary to think about. Yeah. So that's going to be interesting. We'll face that. 15 years, we'll face that. Yeah. So I guess continue with the infill projects. Infill is where you have the ability to really create community. Part of what we try to do is to do things that contribute 
to a robust community that has places that are interesting and fun, uh, that are within walking distance, that you have the ability to really create neighborhoods. And I'm, I'm going to stop you there. I know sure. I shouldn't be interrupting you, sure. but I just want to reiterate that. I don't think people really appreciate how important a walkable neighborhood is until you live in one and you realize after a few years that you know all of your neighbors, you're a lot more engaged in your neighborhood. Uh, it's not just a place you live, it's a place you inhabit. We've lived here since 1979, and just my personality as such, it's what I grew up with with my, with my father and my grandfather, get to know people. And there's no more fun than walking into a restaurant or to a corner store or whatever and get addressed by your first name. And people are going to take care of you, maybe a little better than they do the person they don't know. Well, you know each other. You know each other. You it, you look out for each other without even realizing it. Absolutely. And I, I find myself going out of the way to refer friends to restaurants and entertainment things that are owned by folks that I know and trying to help their biz. It's so easy to overlook because it's not generally an easy part to put on the bottom line, a line item for walkability or, or just being courteous to your neighbors. But it's it's those subtle design decisions like where you build. I right. guess that's not very subtle, but it's it's a it's a process. It's a mental process of of what you focus on. Are you focusing on building the most units for the lowest price, right. or are you focused on building the best units you can at a, at you know at a price? And and in today's world, it's it's more challenging now than it was fifteen years ago, twenty years ago when we first started getting into infill development. Construction costs are so high right now. Demand is is so high. The supply of everything to be able to satisfy that demand is not easy, supply chain issues. But we've always tried to do something that is architecturally interesting. Mm-hmm. I tell you, there, there's a rule that I have. Something that is designed well, that is good design, normally rents up faster, and it normally has the best rents. And when it ultimately sells, it sells for a higher price. And it's because it's something that is attractive, it's, it's appealing, and people want to be around it. And it retains its value. That's one of the things. If you get something that's based on fashion, it doesn't always retain its value. But if you get something that's based on style, that can retain its value. Because right. it's it, it looks fashionable things look good for a year or two. Right. But stylish things can look good forever. Right. right. Even if they may be a little bit dated, you can see back in time. But good design, good design will last. And it doesn't matter what the design is, so long as it's not a fad. Well, um, that's fashion. Yeah, which is fashion. You know, you don't see, see a whole lot of postmodern buildings that have lasted well. However, a good good contemporary ar- architecture that relates back to Frank Lloyd Wright and those types, that, that is timeless. And, and other design that, uh, you know, old Tudor design done well is very attractive. I think a lot of that goes back to the core of design is what is design. Is design how it looks or is it design how it works? And from my perspective as an industrial designer, it's always fundamentally how that it works. works. Yeah, functionality. And then, and then, you know, the aesthetics are important too, But and I think that's one of the reasons why Frank Lloyd Wright has persisted so long because he looked at the, how people use a home right. and redrew the rules based on what he saw. And, right. and it's a, they're functional homes, and they're also beautiful homes, but there's a function there. And if you can live in a place that is beautiful and functional. Right. So one of the interesting ideas that you brought that I've seen, you redid this hotel downtown called The Foundry. And while you were redoing it, you added a gallery to it. 
which to me seemed uh, pretty unusual to have a gallery attached to a hotel like that. And I remember going to the opening and being really pleased with the way that you, the, the work was being not only shown in the hotel, and there, you know, there's a lot of places you can hang, hang artwork in the hotel, but you had a specific dedicated space as a gallery, separate gallery as well. But then walking between the two was the only time I'd gone to a gallery opening where I could go by a pool. Mm. Especially in Phoenix, it created really nice flow. And that kind of creative thinking, I wish I would see more of it. What inspired you to have a gallery adjacent to your hotel? Two things. I wish I could say it was my original idea. It's not. There's a uh, couple in Louisville, Kentucky. She is the heir to the Brown Foreman Distillery, and uh, which is Maker's Mark, Jack Daniels, and, and a very, very, very large collection of, of alcoholic beverages, both uh, distilled and wine. And her husband, uh, Steve Wilson, her name is Lori Lee Brown of Brown Foreman, and her husband, uh, Steve Wilson, they love Louisville grew up there. They have a huge, their house is outside of Louisville by about 35 minutes on about a thousand acres. It's basically a horse ranch. And he wanted to be different. So he raises bison instead of horses out there, which, which is give you a clue to how out there this guy is. He's great stuff. We had an opportunity to meet him and uh, look at this hotel that they did in downtown Louisville, which they took two old buildings, gutted them and turned it into a 92 room hotel. And the, and the first floor and meeting space uh, was devoted to art. Mm-hmm. And art was their art, art that they had collected. Okay, oh, right. That's, okay. that's nice. And, and they have an incredible amount of art, so much so that they literally have a cave that they keep their art that they don't show. And we had the opportunity to go to dinner with Steve, and, and he took us out to their place the next day. And it was really interesting. I, I said, God, Steve, this is, this is pretty amazing to see. And you know, I said, you know, do you, you have a certain art dealer that you work with to buy and sell art and whatever? He goes, and I'll give you his, his Louisville accent. He goes, you know, Tim, we, we, we don't like to sell art. And he goes, we, we like to have artists that we know and people that are still living. He goes, we've only sold a couple of pieces, but uh, we just like to keep art. Well, not very many people in the world have the ability to do that. Right. You've got to be a billion-dollar heir to be able to do it. So they built this hotel, and it was, and it was very successful. And we talked to him about coming out here to Phoenix and doing this hotel project with us because the hotel was next to some property that we had developed. And, and I had an idea to try to do an art hotel, and I just, just read about it. Well, their view in terms of how they wanted to operate the hotel was much more buttoned down than what I wanted to do. I wanted something that's much more, what I'll call Phoenix, uh, much more casual. Uh, theirs was very buttoned up. Hmm. Anyway, we, we ended up not doing a deal with them, but truly enjoyed the experience. That was very inspiring to see what they had done. And so we came out here and, and did our art boutique hotel, Phoenix style, and or Arizona style, I should say. And the idea was to have an environment that in and of itself was worthwhile to visit. And we have a restaurant there, and we wanted to make sure that we had another reason for people to come to the restaurant. And so we put together a program that we would have three showings of art every year, every four months. We would uh, have a new a new exhibit and have a call that would go out to the community um, and have the art, I won't call it a real juried show, but we would select what was there and bring it in the art. And we engaged a person to be our uh, curator for, for the hotel. And one of our grand things is to have us be all facets of art, whether it be 
dance, fashion, whatever. We've dabbled in that at times. That's difficult to do. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very tough job to have all that going at the same time. Uh, but the art program's uh, still gone on. We're, I think we're on our, our third curator. And um, it's been good. It's been good. It's been a place for, for artists to get exposure that they mm-hmm. wouldn't get otherwise. We have focused primarily on local stuff. Not that that's a rule. But I think it's worthwhile to help the local art community to get traction and, and have a place to uh, to exhibit and do that. Plus, when somebody comes to use our, uh, we call it our gallery, our large gallery, for a meeting space or whatever, uh, you're not going to find a more interesting meeting space to go have that. Where you, you're having your meeting going on or whatever, and you're in a room full of art. I have to say, I think you succeeded in making it kind of an Arizona feel to it because, as you were saying, it's not pretentious it's not fussy right. you can walk in and see beautiful art you can walk through through the hotel you can walk through the gallery and it's not even in houston when i lived in houston we had fussy galleries some yep. of the galleries were fussy yep some of them weren't like mine was not fussy right but a lot of them were i think you succeeded in making something that wasn't uptight well we also paid attention to how the architectural how the interior architectural design was done to make sure that it felt relaxed or, or it was different we, we call it industrial chic is what we've done and we came in, we've got polished concrete floors, uh, did not do anything to uh, renew the concrete. All, all the old uh, mm-hmm. original slab, you know, we've got these impurities there that, that we've not tried to cover. And we've exposed all of the conduit for everything. Mm-hmm. And now that was a purpose reason just because it costs. You're redoing a, a concrete structure. And we literally replaced everything in that building with the exception of the concrete. But it worked. It and does work, and it, it doesn't sound like it, it should work because you're basically making you know exposed concrete and steel conduit, which sounds like a prison. But the way you had that space finished, and I think especially the way it was lit, yeah, made it very inviting. And lighting is a very key thing that a lot of people miss. Right. And I remember the lighting of, of the hotel was focused on the right spots and dim enough, but you know it was bright where it needed to be bright, but right. dim where it could be dim. So it was a very welcoming comfortable place to yeah. be in thank you that's not something that happens easily no i i <laughs> yeah yeah so you know a lot a lot of time and energy is spent on that but I, I think it's also funny that you were talking about the heiress and her gallery because it reminds me of the old joke how do you make a small fortune as a gallery owner uh you start with a large fortune that's right so if you're an heiress it's a little bit easier right. to do well, the that. same thing happens in wineries i have a niece that <laughs> that is a winemaker at a very prestigious boutique winery up in the oregon area and she goes tim you want to make some money no, you want to make a little money. And I said, uh, yeah, sure. Well, let's take a lot of money. And then we started a winery. That's right. You make a little money after that. Yeah. Same thing. So thinking about things that are funny, mm-hmm. in your real estate development career, what was the, something that stands out in your mind as being funny, surprising, maybe embarrassing, maybe all three? I think one of the things that, uh, not so much funny, interesting, surprising, but interesting and surprising is something that you learn when you do infill development like us is it when you finally crack the egg and get to know the folks that are in the neighborhood within which you are developing once you do that and you gain their trust the input that you get from those folks is outstanding and not all of it is something you're going to use but you come to realize is that they know what is happening there and they know where there are challenges 
And whether it be traffic, whether it be pedestrian, whether it be bicycle paths or whatever, they know what the lay of the land is. And one of the things that I've always tried to do is to, first of all, crack that egg and be able to do that. And that's that's going to these folks and listening. I mean, really listening a lot. And once you find something that that you learn that is really neat and cool that you can incorporate in what you're doing, you do it immediately and you celebrate it as much as you can because they learn that you listen. And once that happens, I mean, it's amazing the kind of feedback you get and not so much feedback, but input that you get, which is great. And learning that has been very surprising to me. One of the things that I've learned in working in the area of downtown where we are, I became very involved in the Roosevelt Action Association, which is a homeowners association for the Roosevelt Historic Neighborhood. And I sat on their board for for, uh, two terms and termed out. And the Neighborhood Association was formed in the late 80s in protest of the I-10 expansion of the freeway that was going through the middle of the neighborhood. That expansion literally uh, caused 250 historic homes to be raised for the freeway to go through it. And the original design was an above-grade, elevated freeway Mm. that would have completely killed the neighborhood. The neighbors formed this group and fought it and filed suit against the government. And the compromise was to take the freeway and put it subterranean Mm -hmm. and put over the top of it a series of 19 bridges side-by-side that created Hans Park. 32 acres, and it's named Margaret T. Hans Park because she was the person that was mayor at the time when the compromise was accomplished. And as a result of that, the neighborhood has flourished. And what a, what a great thing to have a create 32 acres of a green space park in the middle of, a, of, a, of an urban area. I think that might be the most invisible park in the country because you don't know that you're all, driving over I-10 is you're driving through Hans Park or walking over Hans right. Park, and you have no idea that there's a park above you when you're driving an I-10 right. underneath it. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> and what a lot of what, what people don't realize is that that place where I-10 goes through, that's the golden spike. That's where the east part oh. of I-10 meets with the west part. Literally, that location is where they two came together. Right well, there. the bizarre thing to me is when they were planning that, they were literally cutting it right through the middle of the city. Yes. That's just insane to me. (laughs) But from a logical standpoint of have transportation and whatever, having access to that freeway through the middle of town makes our freeway system here very, very good. That's true. Very, very good. But I think they've treated it well, especially for this neighborhood. Anyway, so that organization was formed way back then and had a great deal of strength behind it. And still does. And the neighborhood's very close. And one of the surprising things is because of my activity and being involved with it as a property owner and not a resident, but the person that's really involved in it, I, I, w- I would always get telephone calls from folks that are around the neighborhood whenever somebody's trying to do a new development. Tim, is this a good guy or a bad guy? You know, wow. all those kind of things, which was which was great. I mean, I, I felt very honored by, uh, by those kind of of questions because they, well, they respected what I was going to say. Well, I'm really glad that you talked about that, about listening to the community and taking their ideas and getting excited about it because I think I've finally cracked the nut of Tim Sprague. And I think what makes him really work. What's that? He seems to be pretty humble because, mm-hmm. and I say that because he listens to people and takes their ideas. Whereas a lot of people 
just want to do their own stuff. <laughs> don't want to talk to me. You know, they want to do the talking. They don't mm-hmm. want to do the listening. And listening, I have discovered, listening is a very powerful tool. Listening is unbelievably powerful. And, and I think what more, more importantly is you, you need to listen, but you also need to repeat back to the people with whom you're speaking or you're dealing with, whether it be a neighborhood or you're trying to negotiate something, repeat back to them what you've heard and make sure that they understand that you understand what their interests are. And once that's done, they then have a place where they can relax. Mm -hmm. And they go, okay, this guy gets it. Well, the other part about listening and taking ideas is that design, the process of creativity, for me, what creativity means is generating ideas. That's creativity to me. If you start with more ideas and you know how to curate them properly, you wind up with better design. Right. And this is a point I meant to make, make earlier is that good design always pays for itself. It does. And, and I, I've learned over time that a corollary to that is that developing a good story, having a good story about what you're attempting to do and being able to communicate that in language that the people with whom you're speaking understand allows you to get their respect, allows you to get their their understanding of what you're attempting to do. And if you can take that creativity and translate it, and I, I like the word translate a lot, mm-hmm. translate it into language that they get, that helps. And that's, I think that's another important key yeah. to understanding Tim Sprague is that he's a great storyteller. Mm. Everything we really care about is based on a story. Yes. And being able to craft those stories crafts a narrative. Right. I attribute that to growing up in a small town in Oklahoma. Hmm. My grandfather was one of the best storytellers you ever could hear. And I was fortunate to be able to grow up three doors down from his house when I was a little kid. And there were a lot of grandchildren in our town and a lot in Oklahoma. But I lived right next door to my grandparents. Everybody called him Pop. I would be with Pop, and uh, and he was a very interesting guy. He was an entrepreneur deluxe and involved in all kinds of things in a small town, from oil and gas to real estate development to owning a grocery store and then earning a furniture store. And this was not the professional kind of guy. He didn't belong to a country club. He didn't have a college degree. I mean, this is a guy that was a self-made man and that really was – he was a Woody Guthrie kind of guy. Hmm. As a result of that, he goes, you know, Tim, nobody wants to be around somebody that's not fun. Everybody wants to be around something that is uh, funny and, and relates to them. And just think of them before you think of yourself. Good advice. And uh, he was a great guy. So, And he told the best stories in the world. Well, that sounds like the topic for another podcast. Could be. I think when we have Catherine back, she'll be really interested to talk about sustainability and maybe some drought talk, because she's getting a little bit upset about that as well. Good. Definitely want to have you back on the show so we can have Catherine here and dive a little bit more deeply into Phoenix and development and art, right. how those all things intertwine. Thanks for being on. Oh, thank you. <laughs>